The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, quit Googling for green beer and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 324 with guest Emery Kuchiman, recorded live Monday, March 10th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who will remain silent. Anything he says will be held against him. Carl Franklin. 39 speakers in my living room. Yes, yes, yes. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl. That's Richard. We're talking .NET for the next hour or so. It's our Thursday show. I'm here in New London, and uh, Richard is out there in Vancouver. And I did something weird this week. What? I went and volunteered at the local middle school to talk to the parents about Internet safety. That is so cool. You know, if I if I actually did that, they would look at me like, who are you? Because <laughs> nobody knows who I am in my town. And You're I totally it. invisible. I love it that way. It's great. Oh, yeah. Well, it was, it was fun to do that. And, you know, the funny part is uh, we all know a lot about Internet technology, whether we think about it much or not. With a little bit of preparation, I think most of the listeners on the show could probably do that topic justice. You're probably right. It's, it's something to do. And, and people really appreciate it. They're really the chance to talk to someone who knows their way around the internet about what's safe and what isn't. And having kids might, like you do in yep. school who yep. are also using the internet, it's nice to just sort of get rid of some of those irrational fears that folks have around that. Well, Start that's using true. the technology sensibly. That's true. Hey, man, let's get right into uh, Better Know Framework. <laughs> that music. That music. Oh, that music. <laughs> we'll let it play a little longer today. People ask us to play it longer. Okay. Well, uh, today's namespace is system.web.mobile. And, you know, 
okay, we all know about system.web.mobile, but you don't really. I mean, this is a this has all the core capabilities and authentication, error handling, and all that required for building ASP.NET Web mobile apps. Um, but you know, there's one really cool um, uh, class in here called Mobile Capabilities that provides a single source for assessing capability information about a client device and uh, performing queries against those device capabilities. So while you don't even really need to worry about it, sometimes you do. Sometimes you need to know the screen size. Right. You know, if you're going to serve up an image, are we going to serve that image or that image? Because you know the problem with images, right? It's that most people put you know, five megabyte images on the website, and then they set the width to be like 200. Right. You know? So you're still loading the whole image, just not seeing it. Yeah, you're, you're loading the, the whole image, to... and you're wondering why it's painting down really slow. <laughs> so you really got to be careful about that stuff. All right. Well, anyway, system.web.mobile. Uh, you may not need to know it's there, but it sure is neat to look around the docs and, and figure out what's under the hood. Cool. So who's emailing us today? Oh, we get lots of email, but let me read you this one. I had a great time listening to your Entity Framework show with Jerry Lerman. Cool. As someone who started out in Java and through various employers have now become a full-time .NET guy, I am always interested in hearing new ways to store my objects in a database. Mm -hmm. You briefly mentioned object databases, and I would love to hear from Carl's, and I think that's who said it, brother, the Java guy, on this subject and where it plays in the future of development if he has experience. Yeah, you know, well, we bringing your brother on the show. I, you know, we. This is the first time we mention it, but yeah, I'm, we're going to interview Jay. Yeah, it, it took me a while to get him to actually commit to a date. Well, but he we've doesn't got think him. he's got anything to talk about, right? Uh, I mean, he's, he's just, so wrong. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so he's on the schedule. He'll he's coming up in a few weeks here. It should be so fun he, too. We'll probably yeah. end up playing some music too. So. I hope you do because for those who don't know, the Franklin brothers, very talented musicians. Yeah, uh, one's a Java programmer, one's a .NET talk show host. It's funny. <laughs> Let me finish this email. Yeah. It seems clear to me that this is where things are progressing. Back when relational databases came out of the 70s, most of the world's code was very procedural and worked well with records. However, today's prevalent strategies seem to be heavily OO-minded with patterns, TDD, mock frameworks, etc. A lot of effort in every project goes into getting your object data in and out of databases. Obviously, this talk was geared more towards the entity framework, so that's where the bias was. However, it seems like this is more of a stepping stone rather than a new, soon-to-be-tried-and-true model of using databases. Which is true. It's version yeah, one. right. That being said, ORM still seems more like a stepping stone as well. At the heart, as with any strategy ultimately working in record-slash-relational-based storage, these tools will always be forcing square pegs into round holes. It seems like object-oriented databases would be just the natural progression. We've been using relational databases now for almost four decades. I expect a lot more out of object databases in the next few years. I would encourage both you and Julie to read more on object databases because you did make some pretty off-base comments regarding their abilities. Well, we had no idea, right? I mean, I was sort of conjecturing. Because <laughs> I, I clearly said I don't know what I'm talking about. And that's his next sentence. I totally appreciate that you stated you had no background, so that's not a big deal. Yeah. I guess in the end, I'm wondering when our object-oriented world will stop trying to create all these great new tools for storing my objects and relational databases and finally start storing them somewhere useful. I feel like the old days when someone told me I had to recode my objects to fit in the VB collection array. 
Ugh. These days, we'd say you're crazy if you didn't use a generic collection. Thanks for the great shows. Matt Penner. Awesome, Matt. Mug that man. I'll mug you, Matt. And if you'd like a mug, send us an email. .net rocks at franklins.net. And with that, Richard, let's introduce our guest today. Emery Kuchiman is a researcher in the Internet Services Research Center at Microsoft Research in Redmond, where his interests are broadly in the area of large-scale Internet services, their operations, and their end-to-end reliability. Often his work focuses on monitoring and machine learning analysis of system behavior to improve reliability and performance. Most recently, his research is focused on web applications. Emery received his Ph.D. in computer science from Stanford University in 2005, where he worked on the recovery-oriented computing project with Professor Armando Fox and Professor David Patterson. Well, welcome. Welcome to the show. And I got the feeling we're in the presence of greatness. No, I don't, I, I don't think so, but all right. Um. <laughs> uh, I'm fascinated by this recovery-oriented computing project. What was that? The, the Recovery Oriented Computing Project was a joint project between Stanford and Berkeley that that focused on improving the reliability, availability, dependability of computer systems, not by trying to avoid failures, but by focusing on on how you dealt with failures, assuming that they were going to occur anyway. So, for example, my own research was on trying to improve the time to detect failures. It turns out that um, in a lot of systems, just realizing that a problem exists is one of the, the key things keeping you from fixing it. Sure. Yeah. I'm, of course, I immediately think of like a web farm and uh, when uh-huh. a web server drops out, having to rebalance the load balancing on that. Yes. I mean, the, if, you can, if you can recover from a failure within, you know, a second or, or, or less, you know, milliseconds, then is anybody going to notice? Are you going to say that your site was down? Yeah, well, I'd love to be able to recover that fast. I expect typically a load balance recovery to be about a minute. But I don't see, yeah. I see a minute is all that bad because a minute is still too short to call tech support. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, you'll, you'll hit reload when you're calling tech support. And, and, you'll get and everything will be back. Yeah, the number of times I've answered the phone and said, Hi, tech support, have you pressed refresh? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I get those emails from my mother all the time. Couldn't connect. What do I do? And I say, try it again. She says, what did you do? <laughs> you did. You did something. So was, was that what you were working on? Was literally just, we have a farm of computers. How do we tolerate losing one and, and keeping going? Um, there were several different different aspects of the project. Um, two, of the, uh, two of the others were recovering from failures faster by, by making reboots faster. Right. So rather than say rebooting the whole machine, can can you reboot just a process or a, a component within a, a process and still get the benefits of rebooting, clearing out the state and, and getting back to a system that that you're pretty sure is working, um, but just doing it much faster because you're doing less work. If I could do that with Linux, no problem. There you go. <laughs> I mean, certainly that I'm joking to some degree, although that is true. Like I can restart a NIC. In, in, in a Linux mm-hmm. environment, no problem, but that's virtually impossible to do in Windows. So I, I actually don't know at that level, um, either Linux or, or Win, Windows, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, we were working on J2E systems in uh, Linux environments in this project. Uh, I see. So you were trying and, to restart pieces of applications that way. Yeah, so these were application-level stuff that we were looking at. That's pretty challenging. Yeah, no kidding. 
Yes, um, there were lots of challenging parts of it. And this, this part with restarting application components was worked on by George Candea at Stanford. And he was focused on how do you structure the applications to make this easier, you know, making sure that you move your state outside of the piece that you're trying to, to, to restart so that you make sure that you don't lose any important data. And then how do you make sure that all the right connections between application components are restarted again? And J2E was actually a, a pretty nice framework for this. Um, just the whole three-tiered model where you have a very clear idea of where components are and all of your state is back in a database somewhere. That model of Internet services just works pretty well with this. Yeah, it creates a sort of natural separation so that you could pull down a piece, bring up a piece, and so forth. Exactly. And, and, and these ideas are, are best practices already. I mean, people already are used to, to rebooting their stateless tiers of their internet services. And this was just going, you know, finer grained. Yeah. Actually, this, sounds, this would feed nicely into that whole service-oriented application model where all of these pieces are as discrete as possible. And one of the advantages being that I can make them come and go to keep them healthy. Yeah. I mean, you have some memory in this, in you know, in a J2E bean or, or a component and... Um, something gets corrupted somewhere, and rather than trying to troubleshoot it, you know, on the fly or take a long boot, reboot process for the whole process or the whole computer, just pull out that one small component and restart it. Yeah, I want you to dump that object, now recreate it and repopulate it from this state. Exactly, and then you're back to your known state. You, you, that, that's, you, know, you debug from that state at right. the very beginning, so it's well understood. How transparent is this whole process? To the developer, um, in yeah. our experiments, the requests that were in flight would, uh, in some configurations, they would get totally dropped and you'd have to press refresh. And in some configurations, I believe the requests, the requests that we knew that you could retry and not, you know, mess up anything like purchases and stuff, I believe, you could um, retry just from the front-end web server, could, could resend them to the, to the middle tier. Well, and I could I could see it being really effective in a caching architecture where I could hold on to the re that requested transaction and only pop it when I'm ready. But uh, yeah. in a typical web environment, you're going to lose the request and have to they are going to have to retry it, which effectively means the browser is the the queue. Yes, that's right. Now there were a couple other fun parts of the project as well. Um, Aaron Brown, who was on this project and is now at IBM, he worked on an undo system for email systems. Uh, and the idea was something like, you know, you're, you're, you have some configuration for your email system. Say you're installing a spam checker or a virus checker, and all, and you make a horrible mistake. And either a whole bunch of viruses get through, or you know, you accidentally delete all your users' inboxes. Oh, nice! <laughs> yeah, it sounds like nice. the voice of experience. Yeah, it, 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 I'm sure this happened, unfortunately, too too often. But um, his idea was real simple. You're running the system on some sort of you know, undoable file system. So you just roll back, say, you know, eight hours or so and, and to, to back when you made the error. And then you you undo it. You just fix whatever it was that, that you did, you know, back then. And then you replay the whole system again. And all the messages that came in from the SMTP server, his system was logging all of those, all of the user actions. And then you would basically replay all these actions and bring you back up to, to now. But assuming that you hadn't made that mistake eight hours ago. Right. right. That's interesting. Yeah, just being able to remove the bad transactions from the process. Exactly. And it was, you know, there were some kind of corner cases. Obviously, if, if a user had seen an email or had uh, seen an email and then, and then there were 
uh, and it was a bad email, you couldn't undo that. The user had already seen it. But you could, you know, help out with everything else, and it was really, it was really powerful. Do you know how to build Web 2.0 AJAX applications with Web 1.0 components? Right. You just can't. In order to have next-generation web apps, you need next-generation components. And that's exactly what our friends at Telerik have for you. Their upcoming product, codenamed Rad Controls Prometheus, is a huge pack of web controls built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET AJAX, which will add previously impossible performance and interactivity to your next project. Just listen to this. The new controls mirror the ASP.NET AJAX API, so development is straightforward. Client scripts are shared, so loading time is pretty much instant. And if you just set a couple of properties, you'll be able to automatically bind to web services for even more efficient operation. After all, the facts speak for themselves. The new RAD editor for ASP.NET AJAX loads up to four times faster than before. Similarly, RAD Grid handles thousands of records in mere milliseconds. But again, it's best to try for yourself. Visit Telerik.com slash ASP.NET AJAX and download a trial. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Okay, that was your research project. It doesn't sound like that was all that long ago, just a couple of years ago, four years ago? Yeah, just, um, well, I graduated from Stanford two and a half years ago. Uh, and um, came straight to Microsoft. Came straight to, to, to MSR, yep. And, and I saw in your, um, in, in, what, in your talking points that you want to be, that you're working on some sort of cool Ajax thing. What is that all about? Ah, so so back at Stanford, I was working on mostly kind of what you do at the back end and inside the the data center part of Internet Services. And since coming to MSR, I've I focused more outside the data center. What are the end-to-end issues in delivering Internet Service? And so there, I've been looking most recently at the web application part, the the JavaScript code that you ship out to end users' browsers when they visit your site. And this code is really large nowadays, you know, tens of thousands of lines yes. of JavaScript. And, how you know, we don't know as web developers, it's, we don't know really what's going on once we send it out there. You know, in, 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 for code that's running in the servers, we can tell how fast it's going, whether it's throwing exceptions or crashing or whatever. But if, you're, if the users are seeing that until they complain... You don't know. Yeah, and, and usually the average browser configuration, the error is so subtle. It's at the bottom of Internet Explorer, and it's just a little bullet point or a little bang that says error, nothing else. Exactly. They just, exactly. Uh, the, the, the net result is that the page doesn't work and nobody knows why. Yeah, and, and, and how are you going to debug that when just the user says, oh, something is broken? Yeah, page well, didn't work. Obviously, I, I the Internet know. isn't working today. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, so this project is about improving the visibility that web application developers have into how their apps are behaving inside end-users' desktops or cool. in their browsers. So how in the world are you going to do that? How in the world? Oh, um, I'm yeah. just amazed. Oh. That's a great idea, Emery. How the heck are you going to do that? <laughs> let's, let's do that. Okay. Uh, now that, well, okay. So the approach that we're taking is... Um, Pretty, pretty uh, straightforward, actually, in the end. What we do is, um, as we're sending the JavaScript out to a user with this system, we go ahead and we, we parse out the JavaScript and we, we rewrite it and add in instrumentation. 
Tricky. Um, and we have a bunch of different policies that us monitor the performance or, you know, debugging related stuff or, or whatever. Um, and then report back on those behaviors in the context of the browser. This instrumentation code that we're adding runs with the rest of the web application inside the, the, the JavaScript sandbox on the browser. Um, and that way it, it gets to see everything that's happening within its security context. You know, it sees function calls, performance information, and can report that back to the app developer. It can't see anything else going on inside the browser or the developer. You know, it can't get outside of that JavaScript sandbox, but the web app developer doesn't need that. It just needs to know, you know, is everything working within my application? Cool. And so what sort of instruments are we talking about here? What can you report on? There's, there's several things that we've implemented and then others that we've been thinking about playing around with but, uh, but haven't gotten around to yet. So one of those is, uh, one of the things that we've done is performance instrumentation. So we can go through and instrument the application to get performance profiling. And there's a fun little thing about the web app environment that is different, I think, from, from traditional software. That's the fact that whenever the user wants to run the web app, they go back to the server and say, I want the latest version of this page, or at least the web app developer has control over caching stuff, but, you know, the, 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 the web app is loaded basically every time and, and the developer has control of it through their service. Right. This means that you can give different instrumentation to different users depending on what you need, and you can take your instrumentation and split it up if it's too heavyweight and have every user just run a small piece of it. This means that you can get lots of data without a big overhead. Without putting all the overhead on one user. Exactly. Or all your users. I mean, worse. Yeah. Every, every user sending you every bit of data, that, that seems bad. Are you actually reporting anything to the user themselves, or is it purely going back to a server-side process? So far, we've only looked at server-side processes. So you're, you're inserting bits of JavaScript into the existing JavaScript to take timings? Mm-hmm. So is it just like yeah. the good old-fashioned, grab the current timestamp, let some more code run, grab another timestamp, send back the difference. That's, that's exactly what we do. Um, we can also do um, just um, timings with the function call information. So, you know, you call this function, this is the time you return from that function, this is the time, and then you can get a whole trace as well, and that helps with bugging if there's an exception or something that happens in the meanwhile. Um, we've also played with returning back some application state. So if an exception happened or if we got this funny argument that we think leads to a problem, then start instrumenting a bunch of other states and return, you know, how how far often did we go through this for loop? What was the input variable here? So you're able to detect the fact that there's a performance problem and insert additional instrumentation in at the time to find out if uh, you, you could detect the problem in more detail. This is really like debugging. Yes, so we, we, we call it, you know, another way of, of debugging these applications, basically large-scale large scale debugging. You get to see your code running in all these different environments and, you know, drill down into the details of them. I can imagine you getting a burst of traffic when you ship a new version and, there's, and everybody hits the same bad spot at the same time. And, and you're told, here's a thousand people who had the same pain all at once. <laughs> exactly, it helps you prioritize. Oh, I bet, um, yeah. <laughs> motivation. <laughs> when, when it yeah. crashes your receiving server because there's so many error messages coming in, that's a hint. That's it. Hopefully, hopefully things like um, uh, we can you know, scale the, the logs back and everything when we need to to make sure we don't crash the server. But, yeah, 
Well, there are worse problems than us getting too many reports, like not getting enough, which is what we're used to. So I'm just started thinking through the possibilities here. I mean, immediately, the different versions of browsers has got to create an interesting challenge here. Well, it's a tricky thing to rewrite code like that. How you must have had some experiences of dealing with the different flavors of JavaScript. How sensitive, how much code did you write that said, if I'm in IE6, do it like this. If I'm in Firefox, do it like this. So the, the actually the trickiest part that we've had to deal with that, with with that so far is um, event handlers. Most of our code for dealing with just getting timestamps and and you know dealing with function instrumentation is pretty standard. Okay. It, it's when you start dealing with event handlers because all the browsers seem to have their own way of of registering uh, those and their own list of events and everything. And it's also then dealing with ActiveX objects in IE. Um, those are the two spots where we've had to do um, special casing and other browser types. Well, and I guess since no other browser handles ActiveX controls, it's only going to be IE that has trouble with that. Well, in our case, it's figuring out when an object is an ActiveX object. If it's if it's an ActiveX object, we can't do all the types of inspection and things that we're used to doing for other JavaScript objects. Right, because it's so impenetrable. Yeah. Emery, um, I've, we, we talked to uh, a few people about design for operations. I did a DNR TV with Keith, please, and uh, what's coming out of uh, the Patterns and Practices group. How does this compare with that? The design for operations, you mean things like how you set up the, the back end of your services for monitoring and, yes, and things like that? Exactly. So you can do um, instrumentation in a little bit of a more intelligent way. You know, I think in spirit, a lot of it is similar. It's all about getting more data and trying to understand your systems so that when problems occur, you know, you're ready for them. You know, you understand what's going on and can react faster and know what to do. One thing that struck me in the conversation with Keith is that, you know, after we went through this really complex setup with a designer and everything to, um, to basically write to log files, and I said, well, why can't you just write to a log file? He says, well... You know, it works on one machine, but base, the basic problem is it just, once you start throwing networks into the situation and then security and all this other stuff, it just doesn't work. So there there was this, um, I guess, the uh, enterprise instrumentation framework a long time ago, and, and these sort of new things morphed out of that. Um, I'm just, you know, this is, it seems like another, uh, you know, another way to, to do things that seem to, you know, sh- they, they should be simple. But once you throw all these complex uh, connectivity issues in the mix, is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, it. I think it is. And, of course, in the end, you're capturing essentially log information at the client and then feeding it back to a central server uh, and presumably with uh, HTTP XML blobs. You're, you're firing back re- requests like a, like a web service call. Yes, that's right. All these log these log statements um, they get queued up inside the browser and then every now and then get posted back to the service via an XML HTTP request. And do you have some way of detecting what browser it came from or or which user it is so that you can sort out these are the errors for this given person? Because I imagine you're going to get multiple messages back from that person. Yeah, the way to to um, sort that out is through the 
the HTTP level stuff. So you can take a look at the user agent that the browser sends up to the service when it right. posts the messages, and you can also take a look at any cookies and things like that that were there. So presumably a session token is a sufficiently a unique identifier to put everything together for a given person. So performance monitoring is obviously one angle of this. This stuff is taking time. Uh, but we even talked about briefly there this whole idea that every so often an error occurs in the JavaScript on the client. And for most part, people don't even see it, don't even know it happened. Do you have some way to respond to that? To, for the, well, what we, what we can provide is the kind of call stack information and the, the trace information about what was going on in the code before getting to that exception. Um, so that gives you a lot more context um, on the service side into, into debugging these, these problems. I mean, just being notified that there was an error is a step forward. Yes. So then the fact uh, that I can actually say it, it, it happened here, here's the stack as things were, it's probably not quite enough to recreate it, but you got a pretty good sense of what was going on at the time. You've got a pretty good sense, and you can also you know, perhaps write the right triggers so that the next time you're about to enter that situation, um, you can go through and try and grab a couple of variables that you might think are useful, you being the developer in this case. So the developer can, can code up a new instrumentation policy that says, Oh, we think we're going down this bad path. Let me grab a couple of key states and then see if the exception um, gets gets thrown again. And you can so you can do this type of adaptive process where you drill down into problems over time. And if you have enough users and it's an important problem, you'll probably hit it again. And what's yeah, and what's fascinating about this is this is not about I detect a bug now I take it in my lab and try and recreate it. This is about living with the fact that the bug's occurring in the wild, and so I'm going to instrument it better so I can learn about it in the wild. And then hopefully get a fix. Yes, I mean, and if you can, you know, recreate it in your lab or on your on your developer desktop, then by all means, go ahead and do that. It's it you're going to have complete control and and you can fix it that way. Um, but if you can't recreate it, then it is about going out and getting more information. Some people don't like this because it it feels a little bit like you're treating your users like guinea pigs. But if the bugs are already out there, yeah, they're already know, guinea pigs. Exactly. You're trying yeah, to turn them back well, into people. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about hangs? I mean, there's so many things that happen on the browser side that are so tough to detect. Like the machine just stops for a while or you know, those kinds of things or infinite loops. Hangs are tough because, you know, once you get into a hang situation, you can't report back data anymore. Cause yeah, because you're hung. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, all, all there I think that all you can do is try and look for uh, things where it's real suspicious, where you were getting a, some sort of information about the program's execution, all of a sudden in the middle of something, you don't get any more info. Um, other than that, it's really tough to say that, you know, that this is going to be able to help you drill into hangs, at least until browsers become a bit more multi-threaded with their JavaScript and network stacks. And it's funny how they really aren't so far. Uh, certainly the work that I've been doing these days with Strangeloop, we bump into lots of issues around the serialization of execution, especially in the context of JavaScript. Uh, the other thing that's been killing us is that depending on the browser you're using, stuff like string manipulation is brutal in Internet Explorer. Yes, it is. I mean, we've, we've actually, as part of this project, in our, on the, we published some academic papers, and one of those was showing that you, you, it's really tough to, to predict how your application is going to behave performance-wise across these browsers because you're so many levels above 
you know, what you think, what your intuition tells you about how things should behave in C or, you know, with the low levels. And when you get all these, you know, these script interpreters and stuff, the performance of these, these minor things varies hugely from Opera to Firefox to IE, including string manipulations. That's kind of, the, the I think, the best-known example. Well, one of the things we saw recently at Mix with IE8 is they were specifically working on string manipulation in IE8 because obviously it's yeah. an issue. Plus, with Silverlight, of course, you can write using VBNet or C Sharp or any of that stuff, so you have all those tools available to you. Yeah, once you get into Silverlight, your your, your performance problems are, are much more minor. Performance is, I think, supposed to be much better in Silverlight. Well, it dramatically changes because no longer are we executing all this code in JavaScript. And I guess the whammy here is most of the JavaScript that runs on the browser for the average ASP.NET developer is not JavaScript that the developer wrote themselves. It was generated for them in the process of building their application. I believe that's correct. I actually don't have a ton of experience with ASP.NET, so I think that... Uh, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, at least you will. I don't know if anybody else would. So we talked a little bit about this, but what about the overhead issues around this? How much code are we talking about adding here, and how much processing time are we adding onto our pages to instrument like this? Um, well, you get to you know you get to dial it up and down because of the ability to to split out your instrumentation across users. So we did one experiment where we were looking at. Um, detecting memory leaks. So older versions of IE, they have this memory leak in JavaScript, where if you have an object in the, in the HTML DOM heap, and you have another object in the JavaScript heap, these heaps are managed by different garbage collectors. And if you have a circular reference between the two types of objects, between a JavaScript object and an HTML DOM object, neither garbage collector knows how to, knows how to, um, to clean that object up. It doesn't right. know that it, that, that it can. And so that's a, a bad memory leak situation. Um, so what we did was we wrote an instrumenter that went through, and every time you did an object assignment in JavaScript, it would check to see if you were uh, completing a cycle across the, the, the two heaps. And it did this by doing a heap traversal. That's really expensive. Right. Um, and so we did some experiments where we were loading... I think it was CNN.com, or I guess, uh, so this would be like a year and a half, no, a year and a half maybe, or ago or so. And what we did was um, we said, okay, we have all these object assignments, and, and any one of them could be potentially closing up a, a cycle. So what we'll do is whenever a user comes in, we'll pick some small percentage of these things, you know, 1% of the cycle of the object assignments, and we'll instrument those. And then um, the user then will not be checking, you know, doing a heap traversal constantly. And so we were able to, by, uh, by splitting up the instrumentation, um, get the user performance down to negligible, negligible amounts, just, you know, a percent or something like that. So it was negligible impact, but, and you delayed detecting the problem, but you eventually caught it. Exactly. I mean, so if you, you know, if you have one user that's, that's doing all of these cycles, you know, a page that was supposed to load in 200 milliseconds would load in two seconds. Right. Uh, 200 milliseconds of JavaScript execution would take two seconds of JavaScript ex execution. Um, but, yeah, you take this all the way down. You, do, you know, you need on average, you know, a couple hundred users to now visit the site before you, you can detect the cycle. But that's not an issue for, for large sites. Well, the big thing here is I just want to be able to detect it. I would even suffer the instrumentation problem if I've got that kind of memory leak where my 
that's the kind of problem that only affects really dedicated users, folks that are there on the site for a long time, which is exactly the people you don't want to annoy. So yeah. when, when I get to that point where I'm dealing with that kind of issue, I'm willing to take some hits to be able to diagnose this. But uh, the, the fact that I could actually scale it back and, and test it a little lighter is really quite clever, actually. It's an interesting thing to think about instrumentation when you have thousands of simultaneous test points, that you don't need them all. You just need a few enough to get a feel for what's going on. Exactly. You can you basically keep you know retrying, and eventually, randomly, you'll run into the place that is leaking memory, and you'll notice it. There's a chaos theory to this whole thing, actually. <laughs> I like this. Like It's got a cool potential to be able to do partial instrumentation around a mass of, of users, knowing that eventually you'll hit the scenario that needs to be fixed. Yep. The, and, and it's not just, it's not just random. You know, if it's random, you're going to be hitting random problems that may or may not be important. Right. Here, because it's driven by the user scenarios, it's, it's actually prioritized as well. So how are you developing the user scenario? Or, or, or are you, or is it my job to figure out the user scenario? Oh, I'm sorry. What I mean is that because it's, because you're testing out in the wild with real users driving the application, right. they're going to be testing the most important scenarios the most frequently. Right, because they're just trying to do their work. They don't know they're guinea pigs. Yeah. Well, okay, let's not call them guinea pigs. I, <laughs> hey. Okay, we'll just refer but, to yeah. them as GPs going forward. How about that? GPs, sure. Yeah, sure. So they, they don't know. It's, uh, that, it's that, a, that, 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 tons better. It's a double-blind test here to, to be able to diagnose these things. But, I mean, yeah. back to the relevant point, as much as we're teasing, these bugs mm -hmm. already exist. But what we're trying to do is fix them in the wild. And, in, and the problem with the test cases when you're talking about web apps is there's so many browsers on so many different machines and so many different user cases, we don't have them all. We haven't been able to recreate these problems because we haven't grasped the scope of how people are using our app yet. So the fact that we yep. could go out and find them in the wild and you know have these scenarios come up, odd, odds are we're going to learn a new use case in the process. Yeah, so mon I mean, the more you can monitor, I, I think that the more you can monitor and the more information you can gather, the better, you know, the better you're going to be able to run your site. Whether it's you know some um, hugely complicated, you know, sophisticated, you know, machine learning whatever analysis you're going to do, or whether it's just graphing the data and saying, hey, look, I have a bunch of new users using this browser that I hadn't thought about before. Yeah, just getting the proportion of browsers is important, but also the use cases. Yeah. That's the tricky one. How do people go through the website? What what do they click on, not click on? And what do they care about that needs to be fast versus slow? So, I mean, that's an interesting side of it. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActiveReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Have you seen this um, product called Who's On? That shows no, I haven't. Well, it's what is it? it's a product, and and I've tried it a couple of times, but the amount of information it provides is really overwhelming. It gives you a real time look at user at usage of your website. 
So you hook it up and it sort of gives you this scrolling output of of things that are happening in real time. And uh, I don't know if it was this product or another product, but it would you could actually just pick a user and it would show you a graphical representation of the websites that they're seeing as they're clicking through them. It's very big brother. <laughs> I am watching you. Yeah. And and what's that sounds really useful because one of the things that happens when a web app fails, or, you know, when you, something in your, goes wrong in your back end is, you know, one small part of your web app um, stops working the right way. And yeah. you can see how your users react to that. You know, they, they won't be checking out anymore if the checkout process is broken. Yeah, and, and whether or not you're going to catch that. Of course, I, and I look at something like who's on and think in terms of this is really utilizing log files intelligently. But if a guy's stuck in a loop or there's some kind of rendering problem on the browser, how do we pick that up? At the core screen with these logs, I think what happens is people tend to reload a few times. And so you get a spike in, in reloads. Yeah, and you see the same, uh, trying to same guy hit the same page repeatedly. Why? Exactly. The same guy repeatedly. But it, trying to debug that, that's, that's you know, another problem. You know that there's a problem there, and now you have to dig into it. And that's where I think the more detailed information that you can't get just from the server side is important. Well, yeah, in a sense, it feels like we have this overarching wrapper sitting around our app monitoring how long different tasks are taking, how long stuff's running on the client side. Ajax really has messed up uh, web pages in a lot of ways because we spend a lot more time in a page. From a log point of view, it feels like we get a lot less information. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's just yeah. People are used to looking at at web logs and thinking that's that's the whole whole thing, and that's not true anymore. Yeah, it's the story's not the all there anymore. And everything, but yeah, the story's not there all, all there anymore. So where the, the product's AJAX view, and of course it's still in Microsoft Research. Where is this going? Mm-hmm. Are you are we going to get it as a real product? Or I know we can download it from Research. You can download it from Research, and the the Research prototype right now gives you the performance profiler and it gives you a, well it gives you the whole thing in the client side prototype so you can download it and attach it to your browser and go browse websites and see how they're performing on your own desktop um, and it also gives you um, um, the right dlls and plugin points and everything so you can add your own instrumentation policies so you can say i care about how my web app is doing x and if you can figure out how to rewrite the javascript to report that then you can plug that into an into Ajax view. Nice. So where do I install this MSI? I, I put it onto my development environment, or do I put it onto my web server? So in you know, so the the vision of this thing is definitely you want to put it onto your web server and then have your web server give out instrumented versions of the application to your users. Right. Right now, our research prototype is built to be a client side dev tool. So this is something you install on your dev desktop and then hook your browser up into it, it's a proxy, and then go and browse your your own, you know, your websites and things. Okay, and so and I mean, today, the product I can download right now is really for my testers. Yeah, yeah, and so the reason we did that as researchers is, you know, we don't run big web apps. So if we right. want to test our instrumentation against big sites, we have to go out and look at other people's sites. So that's where the, the, um, the, the client-side tool makes sense for us as researchers. And I could see on the on the download site, this was you shipped this in July of 2007, so it's been out for a while. How's the response been? Um, the response has been pretty good. So the first time I think we we showed it off to people was at Mix last year, 
um, inside the little lab area there, and and that was that was fun. A lot of people came by and liked it. Um, we've had, I forget, I haven't looked at it recently, but several thousand downloads at least. And every now and then we get emails saying, oh, this is great, or oh, there's a bug report. And we are actually due for an update. I need to package up some of the bug fixes we put in and, and put them up on the site. Um, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> That's weird. So obviously you've got some fixes and things going on, but I guess I'm really looking for when is this going to be a server deployment product? Uh, or really, does it have to jump out of research to get there? It, uh, so, yeah, so we don't have the resources and research to make, you know, full-fledged product quality stuff usually. So we do have to go and partner with, with product groups in, you know, Visual Studio or, you know, someone out in the rest of Microsoft. This to, sounds like a job for Scott Guthrie. It certainly does. Yes. <laughs> you listening, send, Scott? Send him an email. Yeah, of course. <laughs> We're going to send you an email, Scott, saying you need to grab onto Ajax View and put it in the product stack. <laughs> So yeah, so we're we're basically going out to the product groups and our own services and 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 looking for for um, ways to get this out there. The um, now on the research side though, we are continuing the to to develop new projects and stuff in this direction. Well, and I, and I find this whole idea fascinating that there's this this bridge between research and productization, and just the fact that you you've come up with some really great idea. It's an incredibly powerful idea that I could instrument my apps in a very aspect-oriented programming kind of way. And I'm just thrilled that I was able to use that line. Um, because that's what it looks like to me, that we're able to insert over top of our, our existing application instrumentation and spread it out over time and, and analyze different pieces and even a couple events to it to say, if this happens, I want additional analysis here, that sort of thing. Very aspect-like to me. Yes, but you're right. now we think about, you know, Carl's conversation with Keith Please and so forth, where very much on the product side of things, there is this initiative at the patterns and practices level saying we need to instrument our apps better. We need to routinely monitor. It's just got to be part of the development process. And it's much and it's much more technically challenging than anyone thought going into it. Well, and there's two sides of this. There's one thing about the greenfield development, another great buzzword. I love greenfield. I'm building new apps, and I'm going to instrument them like crazy, versus what AjaxView seems to offer to us, where we're able to take an existing application and add instrumentation to it, even temporarily. Yeah, so this instrumentation is really powerful. I think one of the, the nice things about the web environment is the fact that you get to really control the exact version that people run of your app. And this gives you a control that, that doesn't that you don't have if you're you know relying on you know installing new versions of your bits onto hard drives all the time. Well I mean that's the power of the web app, right? That it's very easy for us to avoid that deployment issue. Are you saying that I'm actually able to say depending on what version of the app I'm on, I instrument less or more? Well, um, what version of a browser or environment, if there's a bug you're targeting or some performance right. problem that only occurs in some in some browser, then go and only give that instrumentation out to to that to users of that browser, for example. Ah, so we're going to punish the Internet Explorer five five user. And, well, I think maybe in in older browsers we you know maybe there you just give a message. I don't know. Yeah, go get a real browser. Nice. <laughs> nah. Maybe I opened a line of line line there that maybe the Microsoft PR people wouldn't want me to go to. Oh yeah, well you're in research. You're safe. You're safe. Yeah. I mean, am I, am I safe? Okay, I haven't been here long enough to know that. <laughs> 
So now I've heard everything. We're giving political advice to Microsoft to employees. a Microsoft guy. Yeah. Okay. We we're, we're are crossing a line here, I think. <laughs> so what are you working on right now? I mean, obviously there's some bug fixes coming. Uh, it's at version one right now. What does version two look like? So um, I'll tell you one of our expansion projects for for Ajax uh, Ajax View. Okay. Um, it's a it's a project called Doloto. And it's it's um, um, primarily been driven by my co-author on the Ajax View paper, Ben Livshitz. And um, can you say that on the show? <laughs> I think you can. It's a name. Okay. It's a name. Okay. Um, anyway, um, what the Loto is about is it's about optimizing the time it takes to download web applications. You know, there's all this JavaScript code standards there for a reason. We want to give the user a better experience. You know, they click somewhere and they get instant feedback instead of doing a wide area network request. Um, but all that code has a cost. The more code you have in the app, the longer it takes to download it and get it started initially. Right. So what we do in this project, Deloto, is we go through and we profile the execution of the JavaScript code uh, web browser. And we do this with Ajax View and we figure out what, when functions actually need to run, what functions are there for initialization, what's there for basic features, what's there for, you know, extra feature A, feature B, et cetera. On, on this information, we go back and we, we rewrite the original application code and pull out the JavaScript that is not needed for initialization of basic features. And this shrinks down the, that initial bit of JavaScript that you need to download. Right. So when a user visits your site, they get a faster download, the page comes up, and then, and then in the background, the application goes off and downloads the code for all the other features. And ah, so this goes back to that sort of classic concept of let's push our JavaScript references in our page down to the bottom so we have more of the page rendered before we start loading those big files. But in, in exactly. the Ajax world, that's very tough to do because you count on a lot of that code early on in the page. So being able to actually decompose that 200k or 300k file into the elements i really need now and other ones i can take later that's very cool well, you get a hit in the, up front but the benefit is once that's loaded you're not constantly reloading it yeah so there is so there are some types of applications where you don't want the download to happen after the fact i mean a game for example you might want to make sure that you know if you're playing an arcade game you don't want to be paused or, or waiting for more stuff to download um, but if you've got a large application with lots of features that aren't going to be used right away, you probably prefer your, your user to get started uh, and get that kind of instant feedback, instant gratification. Um, now, the benefits of Doloto are people are, okay, so people are doing this manually to a large degree today if they really want to kind of improve the performance of the applications. Doloto, though, does it automatically, and so it frees you from a lot of the software engineering questions about, okay, I have a new function. When is it going to be used? What file do I need to put it into? You know, here, just structure your application however you want to structure it, you know, naturally, and we'll pull functions out of the middle of files. We'll make sure that function closures still work and all the variable scoping and stuff isn't broken. And when, you know, when you do the background download of the code, we'll make sure it gets put in the right place and, and works as you originally intended it to. It's That's very cool. Uh and is this actually just going to be an extension of Ajax View, or is it going to spin off on its own product? Well, um, I, so we just finished the prototype of this. We have a technical report out. 
Um, but definitely product stuff. It's too early to say what, what direction it's going in. So far. And I couldn't find anything on the web about it yet either. So I guess you're keeping it to yourselves. Um, we have a, uh, a tech report out about it. So I'll, I'll make sure that that's linked off of my homepage. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah we'd love to see that. And I noticed sure, off your homepage, you've got a, a sort of blog site with your papers and so forth. You also talk about being into cybersecurity, but I don't think we really touched on anything cybersecurity-like yet. Welcome to Run As uh, Radio, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, nah, none of that. <laughs> <laughs> cybersecurity. Um, I'm, in a gr- I'm in a cybersecurity and systems management group, uh, though most of or all of my work really is on the systems management side of that. Right. So and, we have and, and instrumentation is a systems management problem. Yeah, monitoring. Yeah, well, how do you keep these things running? So what is it going to take to turn Ajax View into a product? Is it just simply getting a sponsor on the product team? Let's call Scott right now. What? Do you have his number? <laughs> I well, do, I guess actually. we do, actually. <laughs> He's been on the show a bunch of times. <laughs> Let's oh, just call him. <laughs> Let's just call him. Okay. Um, I'm betting yeah, he won't answer the phone. Probably not. It's, I, um, I suspect he's traveling. Oh, I see. Yeah, he's probably off on a stage somewhere, isn't he, right now? Yeah. But is that really it? Do we just have to make a push to Scott Goo at Microsoft.com? You know, we're going around and we're giving presentations to the product groups, and there is a, a fair amount of excitement, but it's, you know, where is the best fit and, and who has the time on those schedules? You know, in research, in research, we get to work on product projects when we want to work on them and, and figure out our own time schedules. But there's so many constraints and so much engineering work that has to be done to make something real. Yes. Now, are you only working on Ajax View right now, or are there other more clandestine projects that you can't uh, talk about? Um, Ajax View, Deloto have been, you know, taking up a lot of my time recently. I've also been doing some background work on just learning more about how our Internet services are run in the back end, kind of going around and talking to, to all our large-scale services uh, to help me figure out what my next research projects are going to be. Um, but, yeah, I mean, basically, I think everyone here probably juggles several things at once. Well, uh, Emery, thanks a lot for uh, talking to us about this stuff. Um, you know, I'm trying to hold on as much as I can, but uh, I know that Richard is really interested in the research projects. I'd, I'd really like to see it uh, become a product and... Well, who knows? You know, maybe somebody out there is listening. Well, and other folks, you know, if you're listening to this, go download Ajax View. You can right. you can search for it, find the Microsoft Research page where it can be downloaded, grab on and try it. It's a it's a client side proxy. It's totally harmless. Great thing to test. And and if you love it, Scott Goo at Microsoft.com. <laughs> Send him an email. Let him know. We're doing good Thank stuff. Thank you very much there. for having me on the show. It's been it's been fun talking to you and and. Yeah, definitely give it a try. We're, you know, let us know about any bugs you find, any feedback you have, what what you like or don't like about it. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. You bet, Emery. Thanks a lot again. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions. Providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes 
and Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.